On this episode of the One Peter Five podcast, a pastoral guideline issued for an individual diocese or region such as Argentina would not normally apply to the whole church. In in the Catholic Church, uh, the presumption is definitely in favor of tradition. He's saying that what we have here on the table is, at least in some sense, it's like a turducken, a turkey inside of a <laughs> duck inside of a chicken. Or something. you know, it, at some point you hit the doctrinal issue, and it's really a doctrine of morals, frankly. I think. Uh, but at some point you hit the doctrinal issue and it's really in Amoris Laetitia chapter 8. Um, and, and then that's being taught merely authentically. In other words, non-definitive moral teaching that leads to a pastoral suggestion. Dr. John Joy and Dr. Michael Cirilla talk with me about the entry of the Pope's Buenos Aires letter into the Acta Apostolice Sedis. Coming up next. You're listening to the One Peter Five Podcast. It is a real joy for us to welcome you all here. Rebuilding Catholic culture, restoring Catholic tradition. Hello and welcome to the One Peter Five Podcast, episode 44. I'm Steve Skojak and I am your host. And today we're going to talk about the... Pope's letter to the bishops of the Buenos Aires region of Argentina pertaining to their guidelines on the apostolic exhortation of Morris Laetitia, in which they uh, suggested that there should be a path to communion for those divorced and remarried Catholics who, for reasons of complex circumstances, uh, find it not feasible to live in continence with one another. There's a lot of euphemisms and buzzwords there, but basically what we're talking about here is the Buenos Aires bishops um, drafted these guidelines, uh, the sixth of which, I always have a hard time saying sixth, the sixth of which um, indicated uh, following a discussion about how continence should be suggested to those who are divorced and remarried uh, as the, the proper path. Um, but that there are some in circumstances uh, too complex, whatever that means, it's never defined, um, for whom continence with, with uh, withholding, no, abstaining, that's the word I'm looking for, abstaining from the marital act uh, between persons who are not married uh, in the eyes of the church is too hard. It's too hard for them. It's not feasible. So they should be given a path to, to receive uh you know, absolution and communion anyway. Obviously, this is a very contentious issue. Um, and the Pope, unfortunately, wrote to the bishops uh, of the Buenos Aires region in September of 2016. And he told them uh, that their guidelines were very good. In fact, he said that they had interpreted chapter 8 of Amoris Laetitia correctly. And in, and in fact, went so far as to say there were no other interpretations um, so that confirmation, of course, of those guidelines uh, was considered by many theologians to be nothing more than papal correspondence, uh, personal correspondence. It was his private opinion um, because it wasn't something that was promulgated universally for the whole church. He was just affirming them in a, in a private letter that, at least on first appearances, looked like it had been leaked uh, to the press. Uh, Although the Vatican was quick to confirm that he did write the letter, and then time passed, and next thing we knew, in August of this year, uh, the letter went up on the Vatican website. And that raised some eyebrows, and people were concerned, and they were like, well, does that make it official? But it was still just listed under the Pope's correspondence, and it was sort of a historical documentary piece of evidence, or so it appeared. Um, I know that I speculated, as did others, uh, when that happened, though, that it would only be a matter of time before that letter would be entered into the Acta Apostolica, or Apostolice, uh, I believe as the Latinists pronounce it, I'm not one, uh, Cetus, which is the acts, the official acts of the Holy See, which is a a digest that comes out regularly of all the things uh, that the Holy See is doing that are official actions. and it, and it lends an, an authoritative uh, component to to those things that appear in there. Uh, in fact, Cardinal 
Coco Palmerio, who is uh, the president of the Pontifical Council for Legislative Tax, somebody who is in a position who should know what he's talking about when it comes to the, the weight and authority of, of pontifical texts. <laughs> uh, he said that by the Pope entering this letter into the Acta, that it made it part of his authentic magisterium, that and the guidelines that it responded to along with it. Uh, so that definitely uh, troubled a lot of people who were already concerned about this letter that appears to give permission for sacraments that should not be received by those who are in an objective state of adultery and have not committed to a change of life, do not have a firm purpose of amendment, uh, and therefore are are ineligible to receive absolution or the Holy Eucharist. Um, yeah, it's a problem. It's a problem that this permission was given to these people, that the Pope affirmed it, and now we're being told, well, this is magisterial, and if you don't accept it, um, then you're a dissenter. And, you know, he's the Pope, and you have to do what he says. So what I wanted to do today is... You know, we've addressed this somewhat on the website, in our articles, but I kind of wanted to have a, a conversation about this. So to that end, uh, I've asked a couple of uh, theologians to come on the program um, to talk about this with me, because I think that a conversation uh, might hash out some of the nuances a little better than writing does. Um, but we're definitely in a difficult situation. Uh, we're in an unprecedented situation. And... And this particular move has really disturbed people more than a lot of other things have because it looks as though the Pope is essentially just trying to make his will manifest through a technical process that lends gravitas and authority to it. Um, but the question really is, can you make something that isn't really possibly magisterial, magisterial just because you say so? Even if you're the Pope, do you have the authority to do that? So we're going to talk about that in just a moment. Hey there, 1P5ers, it's Steve. So it's the end of 2017. Yeah, we survived it, barely. Um, and this is the last chance for you to get in a tax-deductible donation in support of our work before the end of the year so that you can put it on your deduction for taxes next year. Obviously, we are a donor-supported enterprise. We rely upon you and your financial contributions to keep our work going because we provide our work for free. We don't charge for it. And we hope that you'll find it valuable enough that you'll, you know, chip in a little bit here and there when you can so that we can keep going. It's easy to donate. You can just go to onepeter5.com forward slash donate. Uh, there are options there for recurring giving. That's our preference. If you can do it, just set it and forget it. You can give month after month. But if you can't, one-time donations are good. There really is no donation that is too large or too small. You can donate two ways. Uh, you can donate by mail. Uh, we have a little uh, form that you fill out and send in so that we can set up a record for you to make sure that we have you settled for tax purposes. Or you can donate online through our simple, easy, secure credit card form. We thank you for listening. We thank you for your support. And we look forward to serving you again in 2018. Joining me today, I have not just one, but two theologians to talk about this topic. Uh, first, I have Dr. Michael Cirilla, returning guest. He is the Director of Graduate Theology at Franciscan University of Steubenville, and Dr. John Joy, co-founder and president of the St. Albert the Great Center for Scholastic Studies, who uh, specializes in magisterial teaching. Both men are also one Peter Five contributors. Thank you guys for coming on and talking to me about this today. Thanks, Steve. Happy to be here. It's good to be back. So we have this news uh, that I talked about earlier in the podcast uh, about Francis having Pope Francis having added this letter that he wrote, I believe it was last September, uh, to the Buenos Aires bishops. Um, and the letter basically confirmed the guidelines uh, that they had written, which allowed for communion to be given to the divorced and remarried in certain circumstances, or at least said that, that it opened a possibility for communion to be given to the divorced and remarried in certain circumstances where they could not live in continence, uh, could not you know, refrain from engaging in the sexual act, despite the fact that it was objectively adulterous. He wrote to the bishops. He praised their guidelines. He said that uh, there were no other interpretations that they had uh, basically interpreted chapter eight of Amoris Laetitia correctly. 
uh, and that, um, that there could be no other interpretation. So this letter that was sent that was originally leaked, it seemed, to the press, and many people even questioned its authenticity when it first came out. Next thing we know, <clears throat> it was going up on the Vatican website, and people were saying, well, that doesn't really make it authoritative. It's still personal correspondence of the Pope. It doesn't rise to the level of magisterium. Well, now this month, uh, in, the, in the last week, I think it was actually the end of November, we found out that it was entered into the Octa, Apostolica Cetis, uh, in October of 2016, and we're just now finding out about it. So the first question I want to ask, um, and I'll go to John first, you know, what does it mean? What is the Acta and, and what does it mean when we add something to it? So the Acta Apostolice Sedis is the publication of the official acts of the Apostolic See of, <clears throat> of the Vatican. So it's used to, uh, to promulgate all kinds of different documents falling into different categories. So uh, uh, magisterial teaching, doctrinal teaching is included there. Disciplinary stuff is included there. Uh, e even seemingly incidental matters of government of um, uh, of the Vatican and so on can all be included there. So what inclusion in the Acta Apostolica Sedis means, essentially, is that it is an official act of the Holy See, not a private act of the Pope, but it doesn't tell us by itself what kind of act it is, namely doctrinal, disciplinary, etc. So just throwing it out there to the floor, I mean, does the fact of adding it to the acta make it magisterial, as some people are claiming? Well, yeah, John and I were talking about this earlier. Um, the term magisterial is used in, a, in, in many different ways, and I, and I think most of them are legitimate, but you just have to know how you're using it. Um, in a very broad sense, magisterial is used loosely and imprecisely to mean kind of any official act of the pope or the magisterium. Um, but in a strict technical sense, which I think we should use uh, perhaps in this discussion, magisterial signifies an, an official act of teaching as distinct from disciplining or dis <clears throat> disciplinary or governmental acts. An act of teaching uh, in its highest form, the deposit of faith and morals revealed by Christ and the Holy Spirit to the apostles and passed along in unbroken tradition, or uh, including those things that are in, inextricably bound with and connected to that deposit of faith and morals, right? So in that sense, um, uh, it doesn't seem to me like the Pope's letter to the bishops uh, is magisterial in that precise and strict sense. In the loose sense, fine. But it's a disciplinary letter. Uh, in other words, it's a letter about how we should behave, how one ought to. I mean, I think it, as John said, or maybe you said, Steve, actually, uh, uh, how you ought to interpret Amoris Laetitia chapter eight, uh, the only way you ought to interpret it, apparently. And then also uh, how the bishops in Argentina ought to act. In other words, they may do what they propose to do in the implementation. So this is something we've talked about in the past, Mike, and, and I think that it's a, a point that maybe can't be made often enough, which is, you know, what kind of protections does the, the Pope have or, or the magisterium have when it comes to promulgating acts of discipline and governance? Is, is there a protection from making mistakes, from errors when it comes to discipline and governance? I mean, it sounds to me like you're arguing this is a disciplinary measure and that's it. Yeah, let me just say real quick, and then John, I want to hear what John has to say, because I think he may know more about this than I do. Uh, this is his bailiwick more than mine. Uh, but uh, my understanding is that at the very least, the divine, the divine promise of indefectibility of the church, that is, the church will not pass away uh, <clears throat> um, until the end of the world. Uh, Matthew 16 uh, uh, verse 18, Jesus says, the gates of hell will not prevail. On this rock I'll build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail upon it. Uh, so that means that any disciplinary act, e even the worst possible disciplinary mistakes, let's say, could not be to the level where they would actually destroy the church because then the gates of hell would have prevailed. However, I do know that some manualists, in my mind, it seems like an overreach, but some of the folks who wrote theological manuals in the late 19th, early 20th centuries argued that infallibility even extends to disciplinary acts. I think, I think Monsignor Fenton may have argued that, but John, do you, do you know more about that? Yeah, that's a, well, it's a theological opinion, let's say that, that has been held by, uh, by various scholars in the history of the church, but it's certainly one uh, that, that kind of thing is not directly covered by the Vatican one definition of infallibility, let's say. So, 
So the, the church's official teaching on what is covered by infallibility uh, is pretty clearly limited to uh, teaching in matters of faith and morals, doesn't include disciplinary stuff. Absolutely. Now, scholars, scholars are still free to, to discuss amongst themselves whether uh, maybe something like that does in fact uh, fall under infallibility, but that's definitely going to be an opinion debated amongst scholars, not not an official uh, church teaching that we have to accept. John, that's a, a really important point. Uh, the church does not teach that infallibility extends to disciplinary uh, matters, and uh, but but indefectibility does in the sense that you can't make such a mistake on the level of discipline a pope or a council can't to the point where uh, it destroys the church, right? Sure, absolutely correct. Yeah, but we don't. Uh, the difficult part maybe is that we don't have sort of the clear criteria like we do in the case of infallible teaching to know like exactly which kind of disciplinary action would, you know, would would or wouldn't meet those requirements. So we right. so we just have a kind of outer limit guarantee that uh, at least something totally catastrophic couldn't happen. Right. Would it, would it but, be fair to say at this point in the conversation, because this is something that, you know, both of you have helped me with over the last year. And, you know, as a, as a fairly knowledgeable pew sitter, I think we know, oh, the church has a magisterium and some things are infallible and some things, you know, are, are not and you know, blah, 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 blah. But there's a lot of of wiggle room left in the understanding of how the magisterium works, what the charism of infallibility includes. Is that fair to say that there's a lot of work for theologians still to carve out what the limits and bounds of, of this stuff really entails? Yes. I might put it a little differently. I think, I think that the, um, the materials are, as far as infallibility for teaching in faith and morals, I think everything necessary is there. In other words, the, the knowledge is available, uh, but it's not readily accessible. In other words, it's not been, uh, it's not been well disseminated. Uh, and in fact, most discussions of it immediately get uh, twisted up in, in all kinds of ambiguity, especially regarding terminology. Terminology is a huge issue in this in this topic because there are lots of sort of technical terms we use, like authentic, magisterium, ordinary, extraordinary, and so on. And as you've demonstrated, uh, these have evolved over the last hundred years. Which, <clears throat> what people mean by these uh, has changed over time. Uh, people mean different things by them when, when they're talking to each other, so you talk past each other frequently, and the church herself has not given, uh, you know, there's no dictionary of theological terms which the church has promulgated for us. So it's, uh, in my experience, the, the most people... Um, when they when they get involved in discussions of these things, uh, are are speaking different languages almost. So it's very hard for two people to have a clear conversation yeah. about this topic. Yeah. I'm finding that happens in most of my discussions about these kinds of things. And honestly, I mean, this is a personal theory and a, and a tangent, but you know, every crisis that has afflicted the church throughout its 2,000 year history has resulted in some great clarifying action. And and I suspect that when we emerge from the the doctrinal crisis and confusion that we find ourselves in, this is exactly where we're going to see a lot of development is in this area of helping to define these terms in ways so that we can all be on this. <clears throat> I hope it's the case. Well, I don't know well, that it is. A couple things yeah. real quick. First of all, I think, John, you're right. Um, in, in, in a certain respect, absolutely. The, uh, all the basic <clears throat> teaching is clearly given on the kind of extent and limits of infallibility, when it occurs, how it occurs, despite the fact that, as you note, there is a a terminology confusion and problem, uh, even with, like you said, same terms, uh, ordinary, extraordinary, definitive, non-definitive, being used in magisterial documents slightly differently from one another. And now I'm going to give a shameless plug for John's right. new book, uh, which is coming, it's coming out in just a few <laughs> days. It's called On the Ordinary and Extraordinary Magisterium from Joseph Kloitkin to the Second Vatican Council. And you can get it on Amazon. I'm looking at it on Amazon right now. But in any event, here's Here's, John, we're yeah. going to have to put something yeah, yeah, out no, about it's, this. So it's good. It. Um, uh, <laughs> it might be difficult for the non-expert, but certainly not impossible, especially for people who read first things. I mean, I think you can get through a lot of it, but John can speak to that better. But let me add this one point, though, John. John, I do think there's confu a lot of confusion on whether or not uh, whether or not non this seems preposterous, I suppose, but whether or not non-infallible teachings can be an error. 
there's a lot of confusion, even among experts, yeah. even among expert <clears throat> theologians, there there's a lot of confusion on that question. And that's very relevant to this issue of the le letter to Argentina and, and uh, uh, Morris Laetitia. There is. And, and frankly, it, it, it baffles me. So I could tell you stories <clears throat> of my uh, uh, licentiate defense and, and doctoral defense um, going back and forth with my examiners about, about the use of a term non-infallible. Does it mean the same thing as fallible? And from, from a just sort of logical linguistic perspective, it baffles me how anyone could think that non-infallible doesn't mean fallible. But that seems to be, <laughs> but that seems yeah, to right. be where we are. It's preferable to be euphemistic, right? <laughs> yeah. Right. Well, I prefer to be blunt. But <laughs> well, listen, you know, part part of the problem is that that third yeah. paragraph of the oath of fidelity. Yeah. Okay, the profession of the oath of fidelity that that we all take uh, in in theology and priests take. Well, pre in theology, sorry, who all take? Except for Steve. Okay, yeah. So, <laughs> without going into too much background, John Paul II promulgated. Um, an oath of fidelity, a profession of faith that all theologians and priests and people in pastoral ministry are required to take upon assumption of the office that they're given. And some of us receive something called a mandatum from the local bishop, which means a mandate or permission or kind of authority to teach in communion with him and teach the faith. Okay. But in any event, this third paragraph talks about how we are to assent to non-definitive teachings of the magisterium and the Latin uses... That's a reference to Lumen Gentium 25, right? Yes. Um, yeah, the it is submission of of will and intellect to the authentic magisterium right. is, is mostly taken from the language of Lumen Gentium 25. Now, there's a there terminology issue here, too, a translation issue, uh, John and Steve, that uh, causes difficulty, right? So the Latin is uh, relig uh, obsequium religiosus or something like that, religiosum. Yep. Um, obsequium in Latin could definitely mean submission. It could mean obedience. It could also mean respect and reverence. In the Italian, I just found out from a friend who's studying at the Angelicum, who's getting ready to take the oath, he looked at the Italian text of the oath, and they <clears throat> use the Italian word for obsequium, osequioso, or something like that. I forget the exact term. But, uh, what it, but it doesn't bear the meaning of submission. It bears the meaning of re respect and reverence. So, so there's this issue. These translation nuances mm. show the spectrum of living interpret the way that the live uh, th live theologians interpret this differently. Some interpret submission to mean it's it, you just accept it's true. Boom, that's it. So it's almost it's in essence non not terribly different from infallible teaching, except it may not be a matter of revealed truth. But uh, on the other end, you have those <clears throat> who, who see it, and even manualists have seen it this way from the 19th to 20th centuries, that it means a reverential uh, pr prepare, uh, uh, preparedness to accept it <clears throat> as true, but it it has, there's some qualifications there. It has to be something taught kind of in, in conformity to what Christ revealed, the Holy Spirit to the apostles, and uh, the church's teaching, especially prior infallible magisterial teachings. Yeah, and this is important, and I, and I want to circle back to this, uh, especially because John wrote uh, something for us today that actually talks about this. I actually think that it was kind of the key point in the larger essay. And John, I know you're up against a hard break in about 10 minutes, so I want to be sensitive to your time. Mike, you can stay on as long as you'd like. Yeah, let John um, talk. But, but yes, yes. <laughs> if John has to drop off, that's fine. Too. Yeah, no, yeah. I want you to contribute. No, I want him to talk. These are big do it, do it. We can easily talk a lot about it. We'll get back to that essay in a minute. But something I, I want to point out is that my reading, you know, just as, as a layman who has studied theology to some extent on this letter, then this letter is really the subject. I, I know we're talking about the larger categories, but this letter to the, the Buenos Aires bishops is not really even a teaching on faith and morals. It's a pastoral instruction that's related to an interpretation of a reflection on some pastoral considerations on faith and morals. I mean, it seems like it feels far enough removed from the original text of Amoris Laetitia. Then you have these bishops' guidelines. Then you have the Pope writing to them. Then it gets put into the Acta. I mean, uh, these strike me as pastoral teachings. Amoris Laetitia number three makes clear that this is not necessarily for the whole church, that different regions are going to apply different solutions, et cetera, et cetera. This isn't a universal teaching as far as I can ascertain. Are pastoral teachings in any way something that can 
demand the assent of the universal church? You know, does does every bit do the bishops in Poland have to concede that despite the fact that they're saying they're sticking to the traditional disciplinary practice on communion, do they have to concede? Well, yes, there are circumstances in which we would have to honor this uh, letter and say that yes, we could give communion to somebody who's still living in an adulterous union. Does it bind in any way? Does it does it demand their assent on that level, or is it just pastoral and and therefore practical? Does that make sure? Sense? Yes. Um, okay. Let me answer that by taking one step backwards uh, and just speaking of that kind of teaching in general. So a a pastoral guideline uh, issued for an individual diocese or region, such as Argentina would not normally apply to the whole church. Now, by uh, but Amoris Laetitia does apply to the whole church, right? So so the issue here mm-hmm. is that uh, the Pope's letter, uh, the, the content of the Pope's letter is a kind of factual assertion about the correctness of the bishop's letter. And the bishop's letter is, again, a factual assertion about the intended meaning of Amoris Laetitia. And Amoris Laetitia does apply to the whole church. So it, it is, it is, but it's several steps removed, as as you were saying. So it's a, it's a factual statement about a factual statement about a pastoral practice, which has doctrinal implications. So, so the, the there are doctrinal implications. So there's something right. there. I don't want to just uh, say it has no doctrinal content, but it has uh, quite minimal and pretty far removed doctrinal content. Uh, however, uh, in that kind of situation, um, where where we're talking about, so it does come back around to a document which is addressed to the universal church, and so that does require, in the ordinary case, uh, obedience or, or religious submission or, or whatever the right category is for the particular kind of thing we're talking about. Um, the difficulty uh, comes into play with um, with the precise issue of whether it corresponds with prior church teaching. So, so that, that's the real issue. So these technicalities about uh, which category mm-hmm. it belongs to and um, whether it pertains to universal church and so on, those are all important. I don't want to deny that in any way. Um, but I think the core of the issue here is always going to be uh, whether it conforms to tr- um, prior church teaching and teaching specifically at a, at a higher level. Because whatever obligation we have uh, to a teaching of the magisterium or a disciplinary uh, rule of, of the governing church, which is issued at a lower level than something which conflicts with it, we're going to be obliged, we're going to have a greater obligation to hold to the teaching which is promulgated with a higher level authority. So I, so I think that's always going to be the core of the issue here. And these other things are unfortunately sort of complicating it. So this brings up a few points, and I don't know if we're going to wind up having time before you have to go. But I mean, you wrote today. I think that this, for me, was the key takeaway from your essay uh, today that we published. You said, so what does the obligation of religious submission mean for Catholics in individual cases of teaching from the authentic magisterium? I think it can be summed up best by saying that we should accept that teaching as true precisely to the extent that it does not conflict with irreformable Catholic doctrine. So that essentially sets up for me a, a question on magisterium, which is how does the magisterium work? I have seen people propose that new teachings uh, modify what exists in the perennial teaching of the church in, in such a way that what came before, the teaching that came before, almost as though it was like the church didn't have enough knowledge back then and now they're smarter and they know better things and so we can modify what was taught before uh, as opposed to the way I've always understood it which is the perennial teaching of the church is is what has precedence it's almost like star decisis and the principle of the law you know this this idea of you know precedent exists and we build on precedent we don't overturn precedent for no reason so what came before has the weight and any novelty any innovation such as it is, or even any development, uh, which development can never be a U-turn, but it's, you know, it's sort of the the growing of the tree. You know, we're we're adding branches, but we're not taking away from the the main body. That the new is, is always evaluated in light of the old and it can't conflict with the old. If it does, then it's called into question. 
is that a fair understanding that latter portion of how the magisterium works? I mean, is it, which thing do we read in light of what? Yeah. So, so this might be a great point for Mike to chime back in, because I know he's working on some of these things right now, but in, in the Catholic church, uh, the presumption is definitely in favor of tradition. Uh, tradition uh, is one of the sources of revelation. Tradition is the means by which uh, revelation has come down to us from the apostles. So all other things being equal, uh, the, the prior teaching would would certainly have as much, if not more, authority. Uh, but but the more important distinctions uh, are that the the more authoritative. So, so, so a doctrine which is taught with, with infallibility is going to outweigh a doctrine that is not taught with infallibility. So, so the non-infallible doctrine has to be read in light of the infallible doctrine. That's a, that's a specifically theological principle, but there's also uh, just a common literary principle which applies uh, to any kinds of writings, not just theological, that you have to interpret what is unclear in light of what is clear. There, there's no way that you can <clears throat> uh, legitimately take something which is ambiguous and use it in order to shed light on something which is more clear. It always goes the other way around. I couldn't have said it better myself, John. That's exactly right. In fact, it reminds me of an article that we were all talking about earlier off off the air by Jessica Murdoch, teaches at, at uh, Villanova University, a, theolo- a great theologian there. Her, her article in First Things, Creeping Infallibility, September 2016, last year, where she makes exactly this point that uh, the, infall- the infallible teaching is that in the light of which we ought to read the non-infallible, non-definitive teaching, and that the ambiguous needs to be read in light of the clear. Absolutely. Couldn't have said it better myself. Yeah. John Henry Newman, let me throw this in as well. John Henry Newman, in his very famous essay on the development of doctrine, which everybody talks about but nobody has read, <laughs> says that um, that uh, the understanding of the truths of the faith actually diminishes over time, that the apostles themselves had the greatest understanding of all the truths of the faith, uh, and it actually diminishes over time as we get farther away from them. Whereas the presumption today, I think, in our, our sort of arrogant modern technological culture, we have the assumption that knowledge and understanding must always be growing just because our technological ability is growing. Yeah, no doubt. Now, somebody... That's interesting because, I mean, you know, Pope, Pope St. Pius X obviously condemned in, in his encyclical Pescendi. He, he talked about how modernists, you know, all, all look at dogma as though it has to evolve, right? That it's constantly evolving. And, and again, it's that principle of we know more now than we knew back then. We're more enlightened. You know, it has the religious sensibility has to apply to the present times and, and, you know, yada, yada, yada. And, and I feel like that's kind yeah. of what we're talking about here is we know no, it is, you know, the, but, the apostles were so much closer to the source. Go ahead. Yeah, it is. But now, now, surprisingly, someone will come up with, and people in fact have, and John's probably heard this before, maybe you have too, Steve, with the claim that the position that John and I and you are espousing here, Steve, is itself uh, falls afoul of a different aspect of modernism, name, which it doesn't, but the claim is that we do, namely uh, the principle, the false principle of imminentism. In other words, making your own inner experience, your own private self, uh, the, the judgment and criterion, right? So your own private judgment's the criterion of, so the claim would go like this. Well, you're saying that, you know, the current teaching, if it, if, uh, it has to be, if it's non-definitive and if it's in conf- conflicts with prior definitive infallible teaching, you have to go with the infallible teaching. Well, you're, you're saying that yep. as a private judge, who are you to make that judgment? <laughs> right, you, right. See? Exactly. But that's not that's not so hard to respond to, to address properly. The fact is we're not respond you know, in this hypothetical, we're not responding with our private judgment that the current magisterium in is an error in its non-definitive teaching in a given teaching, let's say it's an error. We're not privately judging that. What we're doing is appealing to a public official judgment of the prior magisteria prior magisteriums, prior magisteria. Uh, so it's actually appealing to a, a, a public official infallible teaching of the past to qualify or correct or clarify a, a non-definitive teaching in the present. Um, so that's, that's uh, an important uh, objection to anticipate and, and to, to address. Right. The documents yeah. of the magisterium from former ages are, are public documents. 
right? So. Oh, and one thing that's critical is that the the, the current magister members of the magisterium itself, those members themselves, they have a duty, as do all faithful Catholics, to give the assent of faith, the highest assent possible of theological faith to prior that's right. uh, infallible magisterial teachings. That's but the bizarre thing is that they that the opponents that we are facing that well I'm not going to include you guys but that I'm facing on this issue are are basically acting as though informed Catholics are incapable of reading you know that I can't say well the infallible teaching said that this is black and then the new teaching says this is white there's a conflict they they are treating it as though it's a private judgment I mean I had a guy on Twitter say to me just uh, a couple days ago, he said, if the Pope explicitly says something is magisterial and you dissent, you have no absolutely no justification for calling yourself an Orthodox Catholic. Was his name Rex Matram? <laughs> <laughs> yes, it was Rex Matram, the, the yes. great from Evelyn was the bride, bridesmaid revisited. Yeah, but, but I mean, it's, you know, this is this concept is, well, the, the Pope told you that this letter is magisterial and yet, you know, you, so you can't dissent or you can't call yourself a Catholic. Meanwhile, I'm sitting here looking at, you know, EWTN, Canon 18 of the Council of Trent says, if anyone says that the commandments of God are even for one that is justified and constituted in grace, impossible to observe, let him be anathema. And then I flip over to the letter uh, to the Argentinian bishops guidelines and they say that in other more complex circumstances, when it's not possible to obtain a declaration of nullity, the aforementioned option of continence may not, in fact, be feasible. So on one hand, we have Trent saying, you know, you can't say that people can't live the calling that God has asked us to live, the virtuous life, the holy life. And then you have these guidelines saying, well, it may not be possible for you to live that life. And I'm being told to accept that that's now the magisterium or I'm a dissenter and I can't call myself Catholic. And, and for those of us who are out there having these discussions with people in our parishes or on Facebook or wherever it is that we're encountering it, yeah, it, it's a maddening situation because it seems like we just don't have any recourse to anything to say, well, well, no, I'm pretty sure that this is why this is right. And it's not just, you know, our personal satisfaction or frustration in, in a debate. This is souls are being led into error and ultimately into sin potentially by this. And and it matters to be able to clarify this for people because it's not coming from on high. Yeah, I think it's a great point. I think there's um, that's based on a misunderstanding of what it means to be an Orthodox Catholic. So an Orthodox Catholic means one who believes all the teachings of the Church. Let's just with a simple definition there. It doesn't it doesn't mean one who believes anything that the current Pope happens to say, right? That's that's papalatry. That's the Protestant caricature. Of Catholicism, yeah, like that's right. that's what Catholics have been trying to explain to Protestants for 500 years that that's not what we're about. Right, exactly. And and all of a sudden, that's what we're about. No, no, the Church is is a bigger thing than the Pope, right? The Church is a bigger thing than the Pope. The Pope is the head of the Church. We're grateful for the Petrine ministry, but the Church teaches and the Pope teaches are not exactly equivalent. When the Pope exercises his gift of infallibility. And gives an, and speaks ex cathedra and gives us a definition. Then the Pope teaches and the Church teaches are equivalent. When the Pope is exercising his authentic magisterium without infallibility, it's more proper to say the Pope teaches than to say the Church teaches. So, can you reiterate one more time, just briefly, the elevator pitch? What does it mean when someone says authentic magisterium? I mean, this is what. Cardinal Coco Palmerio, the president of the Pontifical yep. Council for Legislative Text, said about this document being entered in the AAS. He says, he says, while the content of the Pope's letter itself does not contain teaching on faith and morals, it does point toward the interpretations of the Argentine bishops and confirms them as authentically reflecting his own mind. Thus, together, the two documents became the Holy Father's authentic magisterium for the whole church. Now, when I read authentic, I'm like, is it really magisterium or is it not? But there's really a different meaning to authentic, isn't there? Well, yeah, and there and there are different meanings to magisterium even. So authentic uh, means authoritative. Authentic is an unfortunate translation because in English, authentic sounds like it means genuine or something like that. Yeah, it just exactly. Means, is it, it means authoritative. Or is it so, so it means it has some authority. If something is described as authentic magisterium, it means it has some degree of authority. But what degree of authority? 
then has to be specified by a lot of other factors. Uh, and then magisterium also, there isn't just one magisterium, if that's, um, that might sound a little weird, but but the magisterium means teaching authority. Magisterium is a, is a concept of having the authority to teach. Now, so the church has a magisterium, the church has authority to teach. The Pope also has, an, has a magisterium, he has authority to teach. Individual bishops each have their own magisterium, they have a kind of authority to teach, but the kind of authority that a local bishop has is clearly less than what the Pope has as the head of the universal church, right? Uh, and the kind of authority that the Pope has speaking ex cathedra is more than he has when he's not speaking infallibly. So, so which magisterium are we talking about is an important question as well. Are we talking about the magisterium of the church or are we talking about the magisterium of the Pope? And again, sometimes those uh, come to the same thing when the Pope speaks infallibly and sometimes they don't. So, so we can't just say the magisterium as if there were only one thing and we knew what we were talking about. That's a good point, John. And, and to add to that, I, I think Palme uh, Cardinal Palmerio's phrase, authentic magisterium, if, it, if he meant it, and I suspect maybe he did, I don't know. Uh, but if, if he meant he's it... He's a to... guy in a position to know what it means if he's on the pentacle <laughs> Well, you'd, you'd think so, facts. but, you but a think. bunch, you'd be surprised at how ignorant sometimes theologians and, and cardinals can be. We all, and myself included, myself included. I learned, thir I, I learned new things every day. But, but he, uh, in, I, th I think he may have been using it the way Lumen Gentium 25 uses it, authentic magisterium to signify, John, correct me if I've got it wrong, but to signify the Pope teaching... Uh, in a non-definitive fashion, the sometimes we call it merely authentic magisterium, merely, uh, merely universal, or, or merely ordinary. No, mere, I mean. mere, merely authentic. Well, okay, I'm trying to avoid ordinary. Yeah, John will agree with me. I, John's convinced me. I think ordinary is un, is unhelpful. I think it is unhelpful. I, it drives me crazy trying to make these distinctions. Yeah, yeah. So, so, so if that's what what uh, Palmerio meant, and I think that's a fair way to read his statement, then then he's saying that what we have here on the table is at least in some sense, it's like a turducken, a turkey inside of a <laughs> duck inside of a chicken or something. You know, it, it, at some point you hit the doctrinal issue, and it's really a doctrine of morals, frankly, I think. Uh, but at some point you hit the doctrinal issue, and it's really in a Morris Laetitia chapter eight. Um, and, and then that's being taught merely authentically. In other words, non-definitive moral teaching that leads to a pastoral suggestion. Is that fair? I think that's what, what he's saying. Yeah, I agree with that. I think, so th the term authentic magisterium in itself just means it has some degree of authority. So, so you could say that infallible teaching also belongs to the authentic magisterium, as in authentic magisterium is the genus. Infallible magisterium is a, is a certain species within that genus. Uh, but then the rest of the teaching within the same broad genus, which doesn't, which isn't infallible, uh, doesn't have another special name. So it just also gets called authentic magisterium. When we want to be really precise, we say they're merely authentic magisterium. <clears throat> merely. Yeah. To mean it. But, but when somebody says, uh, like in this instance, when somebody describes something as an act of the authentic magisterium, what they're, what they're doing is they're, they're claiming that it has some authority, but they are specifically not claiming that it's infallible. Right. I'm never going to remember all these distinctions. I have to be honest. I'm sorry. Well, that's why you're recording it. <laughs> and that's why you're going to get John's book for Christmas. No, but I mean, but this is, I, I, but I do think this is what complicates these discussions. Let me ask you this, John, because I know you got to run. Um, and, and we can actually wrap this up because I, I think that this is a heavy enough topic that I don't want to go on too long. Uh, with this, people need to kind of digest it, and some people may want to listen over again. Um, is it fair to say that ours is a is a propositional faith? If you tell me, Steve, you've got to give your assent to this teaching from the Pope. Is it is it my response? Is it fair for me to say back to which proposition you know of the Pope do I have to give my assent? What is it that he said? in this letter to the Argentinian bishops that I have to give my assent to? Can, I, can it be boiled down that way? So, I mean, you know, the, the Pope said that contraception is, is intrinsically evil. Okay, I give my assent to that. The Pope said that the Trinity is three persons who are consubstantial. Okay, I can give my assent to that. Is there a proposition here? I mean, is that something we should be looking for when we're evaluating the authority of these things 
and and the need to give our assent per Lumen Gentium 25, that there's a proposition there to give our assent to? I'm, I'm going to say yes, and then I'm going to leave it to Mike to expand on that uh, because I got to go. Thanks so much for having me on, though. All right. Thanks thanks for being All on, right. John. Take care. God bless. <laughs> that was great. <laughs> he just totally ditched us on that one. Well, look, uh, uh, you said you wanted to wrap up on a question that's cra- crazy difficult. <laughs> well, I mean, I don't know if it's says, simple. Yes. It seems well, to me simple. I mean, yeah. it's like yeah. – you know, I, I so, every everything in the creed is a proposition, right? Everything yeah, yeah, yeah. that's dogmatic well, is a proposition. No, no, that's right. I, I know it's, the things it that is, I'm. You're right. It is giving and it, is, it, it is simple. Um, aside from the fact, otherwise that, I feel like I'm writing a blank check. I'm signing right, an open end right. contract. No, 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 and saying, that's right. I give my assent. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But I don't know to what. Right. Well, first of all, uh, this is a little bit of a side point, but it's important because some theologians might be listening or theology students. Um, and they'll know that it is very popular and has been very popular for almost 100 years now since modernism uh, to say that our faith is not propositional. But it is. You're right, it is. But a lot will say, a lot of folks will say it's not. Propositions, they'll say, in the more radical and heretical no, uh, way to express it, they'll say that propositions are purely human inventions to express the ineffable, mystical experience that we all have of the divine within ourselves. Okay, And that's the real radical, heretical way to say it. But others, like the late Cardinal Avery Dulles, who was a fantastic theologian, will also say things that are in a more orthodox key, but still that like kind of in its essence, faith itself transcends propositions, expressed in propositions by the church that are binding. But that's a side point. So what are you, it's John said yes to what question? The question you asked, Steve, is this right? Is that, um, am I required to assent, is the word I think you used, to assent to the Pope's letter in the Octa. Yeah, right? I mean, because it sounds like what I'm yes. being asked is to give my assent to, to a document in its entirety that has virtually no specificity to it. Right, right. So, well, it does, but here's the thing. I think it does have some specificity, but here's the thing. It's unfair for me to say this because John's gone, <laughs> but I think the answer is no. We won't attribute it to him. I think that, of course, but I think, but I wish you were here. Uh, but the, I think the answer is no. You're not to assent to it because if assent, if assent is used in the strict sense, assent means assent to a, a teaching, a proposition on faith and morals. And there's no doctrinal teaching in that letter. What the letter is doing is it's a disciplinary letter, as John himself you know, agreed with in the earlier part of the conversation. And so what's required is not assent, but rather obedience, right? So assent is given to the teachings, obedience is given to the disciplinary and governmental norms, okay? So we're required to obey it. Now, what does obeying it entail is a difficult issue, but I think one of the things at least that it entails is that it's saying you have to interpret a Morris Laetitia 8 the way that the Argentinian bishops did. Is that fair? Do you? Yeah, I, I, that's what, what I believe that it's saying. And yeah, if we're going to yeah. look at what... So I'm not saying you... Dis- uh, by the way, for the record, I'm not saying you dissent to it. I'm just saying it's not a matter of assent. It's a matter of obedience. It's a matter of obedience. No, but I mean, this. I think this, this is really significant, right? Because we are already, people like me, are being accused of being dissenters. Right. And when I distilled down the the combination of the Buenos Aires letter with uh, the Pope's letter back to them. I put it into one summary paragraph. These guidelines are saying that the possibility of access to the sacraments of reconciliation, the Eucharist, confession, and communion for those in complex circumstances where limitations would lessen their responsibility and guilt, and they will not make the commitment to live in continence, to refrain from sexual activity, the Pope said, that's okay. In fact, there's no other interpretation. You can give communion to some of those people without ever specifying when and what the conditions were and how we determine that. How do we give our assent? Not only to that because of it being a clearly problematic teaching in terms of prior teaching, but how do you give your assent to something just, I mean, even if it was about something innocuous that's ambiguous and nonspecific, how do you give your assent to that? Do you do you find that ambiguous? Because it seems to me pretty clear. It's clear in terms of the principle of there are some circumstances when. Right, right. right. But it's not clear at all about what those circumstances are and when they would happen and right. whether there are well, certain conditions well, that have yeah. to apply. Yeah, yeah. Um, in in Amoris Laetitia 8, some of those conditions are specified uh, – yeah, I mean, he could. It could have been more detailed, and it's not. But it's not terribly general. Um, 
Yeah. Uh, but I mean, yeah. if we wanted to be sophists about it, right, we could probably come up with a scenario where someone is in a situation right. where, let's say, it's a, you know a woman in a third world country who's uh, you know the husband is very much because it's a patriarchal society. He has authority over her, and he is you know being abusive, and she needs to engage in relations. And I mean, there are people who come up. This is what people right, think right, that, right. that a Morris Latifi was about. Yeah. I don't think it was, but if we were to enter into that hypothetical, yeah, yeah, you could say there are circumstances where someone is in a situation that they can't get yeah, out yeah, of. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And Steve, I, their, you their can, guilt is yeah, mitigated. You can, say and they that. could continue to receive well, communion. Yeah, you could well, say that's, that's a, what it means. That's that's really if heartbreaking. That's really about. really heartbreaking. That's heartbreaking. And I don't um, think it really is what this is about, and I don't think it's really what's happening, and I don't think that that's but, even the point. But are you, do you think even that would it would be okay if it's in an extreme case like the one you mentioned? Because even then, well, I there's think a problem. That, I think that there is a See, problem. Because, because you can go if through. I were in that situation, I mean, granted, it's hard to abuse a six-foot-four man of my girth and mass, Right, right, but, right. But let's just say I had a wife, you know, who was handy with a rolling pin. Yeah. You know, I can't imagine. Or a ninja wife. Or ninja wife, yes. as some of us might have. Yes. I can't imagine being in a circumstance where this was happening, and I would feel okay with yeah. presenting yeah. myself for communion. I would be going to confession saying, I don't want this to happen. Mm. I'm trying to stop it from happening. Okay, well, that's you know, that's there, different. There would be no, no, yeah, no, right? no, no, that's different because um, that wouldn't be an example because the Argentinian bishops and Amoris Laetitia both say um, that, the, the, well, the Argentinian bishops say they're just unwilling to live in continence, and then Amoris Laetitia so, yeah. says, unable without, it's not unable without it's committing not further sin. to live in continence. Yeah, yeah. I want to know where it's not feasible for people yeah, yeah. to not well, live in okay, continence. Okay, so let, let me say this. Um, you can take every single moral virtue and, and all the four moral virtues and the three theological virtues and all of their many, many, many species. So there's faith, hope, and charity, theological virtues. There's prudence, justice, fortitude, temperance, the moral virtues. And then there's like dozens and dozens of species of each of those virtues, okay? And you can come up with a hypothetical situation, Steve, where it is egregiously difficult and possibly to the point of death, okay? Not just abuse, mm -hmm. but death, to obey God's commandment for any of those species of virtue or vice, the contrary vice, okay? okay? Um, from everything from heresy with respect to faith to, you know, hatred with respect to charity to uh, adultery with respect to temperance, okay? So you can get, and and the church has consistently taught and, and Jesus taught and the, the apostles taught and consistently from that point on that um, really there, there's, there are exceptionless, well, JP2 put it this way in Veritatis Splendor, there are exceptionless moral norms. There, there are certain moral norms that admit of no exceptions. And yes, that does, sometimes mean you have to suffer death you know um yeah. or or less than death just abuse or privation or suffering um any of us who've converted uh in our young adult or adult lives very often had to go through very painful social situations where we break off friendships or, or relationships that aren't appropriate um in the christian catholic life uh that cause great uh you know, just friendships are gone and the, there's great pain that lasts the rest of your life. Okay. So, so I was spitballing when I was trying to figure out a scenario, but really, no, I don't think there is. I mean, I think what John or you quoted Trent, you, yeah, you quoted Trent and Trent says it. I mean, that, how do you give you know, your assent to this teaching? So I don't, I, maybe I, it's not fair to ask. Well, well, for, 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 for most of us, we won't have to, um, for most of the lay faithful, we won't have to deal with it. For those who are divorced and remarried, there are a bunch, but that's not the majority of Catholics, but there's a large number of them. They have to engage with this. Theologians who have to teach it, we have to deal with it. And priests and bishops who have to implement it, they have to deal with it. Well, so I, I have to deal with it number. because I'm a commentator on things exactly. that are going on in the public life of the yeah. church. And So how do we do it? Yeah. I, I, well, I don't see how I can give my assent to this, but then that throws us into the quandary of then what exactly does this mean? And I don't yeah, know yeah. a tidy way to answer that question. Those who've spoken out very um, clearly and uh, vigorously about this, about the problems like Joseph Seifert and others, mm -hmm. <clears throat> you know, ha many of them have suffered um, some poignant uh, uh, retribution right for doing so right. so we're in it we're in a very i think frankly it's a very unhealthy situation in the church right now where instead of engaging in a dis, relatively dispassionate uh, uh theological discussion and debate um 
where we examine carefully uh, uh, and thoughtfully both sides, right? Uh, so that we can come to a knowledge of the truth, right? Instead, we have a, 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 a somewhat of, of a kind of chilling situation. There's a pall cast over this uh, milieu, right? Where where it's very uh, it's intimidating for yeah. people, um, especially with authority or teaching authority, right? Or teaching position what? or priests, you know, to uh, to to speak about it because people have been punished, right? Yeah. But uh, it would be nice if we could just ha- talk about it without that what's interesting is that it came up in one of the discussions i had today online um that john the 22nd pope john the 22nd despite the fact that technically he had heretical ideas it hadn't you know the beatific vision and and the vision of god and when it would happen and all that hadn't really been defined yet by the church but technically he held heretical. but it had been taught no it it had been taught and it was divinely revealed yes yes but i mean technically he had heretical views right Uh, right so right Materially, yeah. But what he did was he said, well, I consider this a question that's totally open for theological debate. That's right. And, and he invited it and asked for it and he got it. He got it and then he recanted his position and said, I never meant to lead anybody into error. He was open to it. So here we have this this pope that, you know, history has essentially viewed as an example of a pope who held heretical views. Right. Uh, who is it, who is being more open to this this dialogue and this natural academic discussion over these theological principles than what we're dealing with now? Well, right. yes so and no. I mean, you just have to shut up and accept it. You don't have any choice. Yeah. Well, first of all, I think generally, absolutely, that's right. Okay, in general terms, because he, in writing, in 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 his, these were homilies he gave, and then at, when he had them published and promulgated throughout the Catholic world, throughout Catholic Europe, we're talking about 14th century. Um, at the end of them, he added the note, um, and if but if anyone can show that I'm I'm fallen. Uh, into error here, I'll correct my position. Mm-hmm. So he said that from the very beginning, and he invited the discussion. Now, now, so in general, what you said is exactly right. But there is a few parts of that history that are really painful and rough. For example, um, some members of the of the Holy Office of the Inquisition, which is now called the Congregation for the Doctrine of the Faith, nice tamer term, yeah. uh, but they did actually persecute and discipline. Uh, not physically torture or anything, but just pers- you know, kind of go after and discipline uh, certain theologians who disagreed with with John the Twenty Second's homilies. So there were some casualties even then. Okay, so there were, but I don't think the general uh, feeling was quite as uh, fearful as it is now. Yeah, I think that's right. It's not good, man. Not not good. <laughs> No, it's not, and I, I, I think that I mean this is probably a good place to leave it. I didn't, I didn't yes. propose to be able to have a solution to this crisis at the end of forty-five minutes. Um, but, but I mean, this is what what Catholics are grappling with. This is what theologians are grappling with. This is what pastors are grappling with. Yeah, and, yeah, yeah. Listen, could I ask? Not sustainable. Please do. Yeah, go you, ahead. You and and the listeners uh, to to take what I'm about to say. Um, Without the general ennui and kind of tiredness that usually accompanies what I'm about to say, which is prayer and penance. You hear, oh yeah, prayer and penance, right. All right, I hear that again. But listen, I'm telling you very seriously uh, and urgently that daily prayer, uh, morning offering, evening examination, uh, 15 minutes at least of mental prayer a day with Jesus, preferably before the Blessed Sacrament, frequent reception of the sacraments, and doing the first Fridays, doing the first Saturday devotions, making reparations, little acts of reparation uh, is absolutely critical. Uh, We all need to love the Holy Father and uh, praying for him, the success of his pontificate, and doing prayers of of penance and reparation for his sins and the sins of all the bishops, priests, and, and lay people, all of us. I guess first we have to do reparation for our own sins, but also for the sins of others in the church. Um, John Paul II, it was to- her, we'd hear, right, that he'd go to confession once a week, I think, or very frequently. So so popes, you know, they sin and they need our prayers. They're, they're our brothers in Christ as well as our Father in Christ. Uh, so I think, and the church is just suffering something really, uh, I mean, really immense, Steve. So uh, as trite as it may sound, uh, I, it's just urgent to incorporate some daily penance, some kind of daily, little little thing. Just whenever you're in the car, maybe don't listen to the radio or something, right? I don't know. I, I'm tempted right now just to add some dramatic piano music. <laughs> nice. <laughs> very, yes. Very touching feel. No. I have to keep my sense of humor. About but um, yeah. No, I know you're right. I mean, it sounds like a lot of work. 
<laughs> You've never done that before. That's awesome. At least not while I've been on. That's awesome. Oh, it's. I have like a soundboard here, so I can add. Hey, darling. Want to go to First Friday Mass with me and, <laughs> and do some reparation together? Would you like that? Small meal is equal to one larger meal. <laughs> That's great. Oh yes, I forgot that one. That's really good. <laughs> All right. Well, Mike, I appreciate it as always. So uh, we were speaking today again with. Uh, Dr. Michael Cirilla, Director of the Graduate Theology at Franciscan University, and uh, Dr. John Joy, who is the co-founder and president of the St. Albert the Great Center for Scholastic Studies. He had to drop off early because he had another engagement. Uh, but thank you uh, both for being on. Thanks so much, Steve. God bless you, buddy. All right. Thank you. You've been listening to the 1 Peter 5 podcast. This has been a production of 1 Peter 5 Incorporated. Copyright 2017, all rights reserved. Please remember to visit us online at 1peter5.com. If you enjoyed this podcast, please consider making a tax-deductible contribution to support our work at 1peter5.com forward slash donate. Thank you for listening.